0: This is a podcast about new crops. You're gonna love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin.
1: I realized I was kind of a a data point of one (laughs) in the US. I didn't know anybody else growing these apples. Uh, commercially, um, organically, in our Midwest conditions. So it's been a lot of trial and error and it's trial and error to this very day. (laughs) At least um, as my husband has said, well, if we can't sell it all, we can just drink it. (laughs)
2: to another episode of The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. My name is Stefan Mursky, and I'm a commercialization outreach specialist with UW-Madison. Today's episode is all about cider apples and making hard cider. And I'm really excited to talk about this subject. This is our first ever Cutting Edge episode about cider apples. And we've got... Two panelists joining us today with a lot of expertise in um, how to make hard cider. So, joining us is Dan Bussey, who is an apple historian, orchard manager, cider maker, and author of a seven volume series all about uh, the history of apple varieties in America and Canada. And our other uh, panelist joining us today is Deirdre Birmingham from the Cider Farm in mineral point wisconsin which is about 10 minutes west of madison so i'm just going to have the two of them uh introduce themselves and give a little background um, on their their business and experience with cider making so uh dan do you want to go first
0: sure um anyways i'm dan Bosse. i've been a Long time apple grower. I started growing heirloom apples since the late 70s, and uh, I've really never looked back. What I really enjoyed growing and and reading about and writing about. And uh, I spent many years as a cider maker here in Edgerton. Uh, Mostly I was making uh, the the raw product, uh, unfermented product that I was selling then to um, uh, like the wine and hop shop and Monroe Street and uh, Willie Street Co-op and whoever, whatever came by my door that wanted a good mix of, of cider that I was making. And so it was a lot of fun. I did that for 24 years currently now and then I was, of course, then the orchard manager of the seed savers exchange for for six years and uh, built up the collection there before I left and now i'm retired but not retired i'm uh, i'm the orchard manager for the silverwood county park. uh, heirloom orchard project, which is in uh, southeast part of Dane county where we're planting a, a community orchard of about 1200 trees hopefully about 600 varieties of apples that will be available for anyone to come down and sample and take. And we will have all the extra apples when they're producing available for, for cider makers to make hopefully some very interesting cider.
2: Cool. That that's, that's exciting. That's a really cool. Um, Eirdra, do you want to talk a little bit about yes. your background?
1: Yes. Yes. And my background connects to Dan in ways. <laughs> so uh, back in late 2002, my, husband and I had the chance to finally buy a piece of land so that we could do our farm-based business together. And we got this naturally pretty piece of land, not knowing what we were gonna do, just that we'd farm organically and have some kind of nice high quality finished product. And in our uh, thinking process, we landed on doing apples for cider. And when I say cider, I mean the fermented kind, the pre-prohibition cider here in America and what the rest of the world calls cider. <clears throat> so uh, we learned that cider is fermented like a wine. It's, it's not brewed. And so we thought if we're going to ferment the juice of apples, well, you don't make it, and you ferment it similar to a wine, you don't make a great wine out of just any old grape. So we thought, what kind of apples? And we learned about English and French cider apples, uh, that they in particular, the English and French, developed such apples and some of the apples even have tannins. And uh, tannins in a wine grape uh, can give complexity, character, mouthfeel, give it give it some depth. So we thought, great, these are the kind of apples we want to grow. And then we quickly found out they weren't com- commercially sold in the U.S. <laughs> so then this is where Dan enters, because he was teaching a class on grafting. <laughs> Uh, through UW Extension, and uh, we heard about that class, signed up right away for it, um, hung out with Dan after the class, and um, <laughs> turns out he has some of these very uh, cider varieties in his own small orchard, so um, that started, um, the grafting just went from there, so Dan and I would would order rootstocks together. Dan helped me hone my skills. He, he grafted some trees for me alongside my grafting. And so he f- uh, plays a key role in the foundation of the cider farm and, and our brand. Our our brand, our ciders and uh, apple brandies are all based on, on, on this farm. And we focus on those tannic apple varieties since uh, we can't really get those anyplace else. I guess nobody else is crazy enough to <laughs> to try to grow them because they are they are challenging, uh, and then uh, doing them organically for, <clears throat> adds adds another layer of complexity, let's say, or challenge to it. Um, but we're we're very glad we 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 went this route. It's certainly not the route for for everyone, and it's a very uncommon route. Um, uh, It was 10 years before we even had a product in the marketplace. Um, First, you have to get good at grafting, and then I realized I was kind of a a data point of one (laughs) in the US. I didn't know anybody else growing these apples uh, commercially, um, organically, in our Midwest conditions. So it's been a lot of trial and error, and it's trial and error to this very day. (laughs) yeah so it's yeah. it's quite a journey but um at least um as my husband has said well if we can't sell it all we can just drink it <laughs> but, yeah. but it's great but, finding people yeah. that have a lot of interest in in sort of real ciders um and in these ones that feature the apple that's what that's what that's what we're about so you've got two people here on this podcast who are really about the Apple and <clears throat> um, there's a lot of creativity in the American um, cider market. and um, I guess we we find ourselves not being as creative by you know adding a, um, a lot of things to our ciders. We try to try to make it um, kind of feature um, what cider more historically has been um, as well as um, what these great apples can add to it.
2: Yeah, can we talk a little bit more about the, the apples that, that you use and, and the varieties? So, Dan, I know this is your area of expertise um, as an apple historian. Can can you just talk a little bit about those English and French varieties and what makes them so great for cider?
0: Well, most of the European cider varieties are a species called Malus Sylvestris. That's the European wild crab. And they tend to have... Um, more flavors that are, the the apples tend to be probably a little bit smaller, not always, but smaller, and that changes the skin to pulp ratio so it can sort of concentrate the tannin aspect. So what they're looking for, of course, are the bittersweet flavored apples, the bitter sharp flavored apples. Um, I think the most popular variety in the States is probably the bittersweet varieties. That tends to be the kind that we're looking for. A lot of sweetness uh, some aroma hopefully with the apple if it has it and then has in that tannin structure that um, just gives you that mouthfeel and quality to the cider that the deserted apples just don't have so yeah. it's been really fun um, I've grown a lot of different kinds I think one of the first ones that was notable for cider in this country was the uh, Virginia White that came out in the late 1600s And then I think it was followed very quickly by the Hughes Virginia crab, which is still a variety that's available today. A lot of people use it as a cider uh, type. I think it does better perhaps maybe in Eastern and Southern states, but it does grow in Wisconsin and Iowa and does pretty well. So there's a lot of different kinds out there, um, which is really fun. That's That's the thing as Deirdre mentions is having so many to choose from, you will find the subtleties as where they grow in your area what ones do well and what ones don't. And
2: yeah, so you, you talked a little bit about the different qualities of, of those European cider apples, uh, like the, the tannins and the, the, the sweetness and the bitterness, um, but what, what, what separates those cider varieties from just kind of your, your everyday dessert apple that you'd find in a supermarket?
0: Well, mostly a lot of them aren't particularly tasty. Um, (laughs) That's that's a lot of it. Yeah, you sort of think it's sort of counterintuitive. If you'd like to eat it, you ought to make great cider out of it. That doesn't always work. Um, a lot of these are what we call spitters. Um, they're so, tan- they're so, so puckery when you eat them that it just like, woo, you know, you just shake your head about that. But when you analyze the, the structure of the apple and you check the juice, sometimes you find that these apples that are so bitter have an incredible amount of sugar in them. Um, and it's really fun to, uh, to, to sort of play with that because it gives you then the sugar you need for the alcohol, or production, um, and it just gives that flavor and mouthfeel, which is great. But I find out that there's differences in this country about what kind of ciders that people like. In New England, um, they tend to like more of an acidic cider. Uh, so you use what they would call a bitter sharp apple. Um, and then in the Midwest and most other places, I think the bitter sweets are the kinds that I think most people like. I was at uh, apple camp in Maine uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And it's a, it's sort of like a mini uh, cider con, which is the big cider convention most years. And there was a lot of commercial cider makers that were there, and we talked about the different styles of apples. And that's what sent, tends to be popular in the Northeast are the ones that have a little sharper flavor, a little bit more acid than the, the ones that, that are here. But that's the fun of it, and I think the biggest thing that everybody's looking for now are foraged apples, they call it scrumping, um, looking for those wild apples that are growing in hillsides and scattered places around that um, they think will make uh, the next new great cider variety, because the um, a lot of the European cider apples that we get are a little touchy to grow, as Deirdre well knows. <laughs> um, they tend to ripen sometimes a little bit too early um, they don't get a chance to really develop their sugars I think as they should um they're very subject to fire blight and that is always a problem when you're a grower uh, but having trees that stay alive that's kind of important um, so there's a lot of problems that I've come to find with the European cider varieties I will never stop growing them but I realize that they have their limitations so it's really a, a fun thing right now that more people are foraging wild apples for um, for cider production that they've come across that have these really great characteristics. When you bite them, they're just kind of nasty to eat, but there's a, there's a lot of really good sugars that are in there and uh, they do end up making some pretty decent ciders.
2: Interesting, yeah. So I think we're gonna have to dedicate a whole nother episode to uh, apple production for cider making specifically. But Deirdre, if you could just touch on, like, how, how do you manage your orchard with these varieties that are not adapted to our region?
1: Well, um, some are better adapted than than others. So yeah. in our first um, block of trees, maybe about 800, 1,000 trees, maybe, I think I had about 10, a good 10, maybe 11 varieties in there. And now I'm reducing that down to four or five. I mean, some of them just deselected themselves because they were so sensitive to this lethal disease called that Dan mentioned called fire blight. So, and it's it it's highly contagious, a bacterium. And so it's um very a lot of these cider varieties are 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 susceptible to it and some greatly so. So that one French variety called Medaille d'Or, which stands <laughs> for, for gold medal. Yep, Dan's laughing. <laughs> he lost it too. That one didn't meddle here at all. <laughs> so now we're trying one uh, called Matei, and that is um, one that's actually grown in the Calvados region of France for the Calvados apple brandy. And so it's great for us since we also do um, do a- apple brandy. Um, but yeah, d- spring is is definitely a, um, a touchy time for me. I'm on edge because not just of frost, But because of that fire blight um, being I mean that's a key time for it to enter the blossoms is uh, at that time so um, that's a that's that's quite a challenge keeping the trees um, protected uh, from heat from uh, rain when we have uh, warm warm weather. Um, We also have to, we find that the cider varieties are more prone to rot. Uh, We do grow two table apples for blending with all this tan, uh, with all these tannic apples and one in particular for its, for its acid, um, since the bittersweets are very low on acid. Um, But, uh, and those, you know, don't seem to have much problem with rot at all, but the cider varieties um, definitely Definitely can uh, have have such issues, and that's a that's a real tough one to, to deal with. Also, um, we do we, we don't pump nitrogen into the trees when people are getting orchards established. They're really trying to get them to grow tall fast, and uh, we don't do that because that makes them more susceptible to fire blight. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you have to there there's there's always um, kind of trade offs um, in whatever you do. So um, Mm-hmm. Uh, but but we're so we don't we don't get a lot of quantity from them but we do say we get we get quality mm-hmm. um, and I have figured out you know one of my favorite ones to grow I just saw early on that hey I like the way that tree grows um, is is Davinette, and that's a nice English bittersweet um, it can be annual ours with the wacky weather we've had has gotten to be a bit biennial meaning every other year Um, This is a big year for it after getting uh, hit by three freezes last year. So, yeah. So, so right now we're, we're, we're struggling with our biggest crop ever, but it's a, it's a great struggle to have. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Moment moment we've been, we've been waiting for.
2: Yeah. Well, um, I
1: run test rows of apples. The, the other thing too, and Dan mentioned um, wild apples, we've always encouraged friends, um, Uh, to go after all these wild apples and we would have a community apple pressing here and get those spitters and get this uh, melange, this great mix of apples, um, no no matter what size, what they look like, what color, um, just throw them all in the hopper and it just makes great juice. Uh, There's more to it than just sweetness. There's some complexity to it, really nice viscous in the the mouth. It's certainly... Um, when they go home and ferment it, it um, it yields some some nice some nice cider. And Dan brought to us a a wild um, apple tree found in Minnesota um, called Bush, where uh, the person who found it knew Dan was the go-to guy because he said it had a lot of tannin and and a lot of a lot of sugar, high, high bricks. Yeah. So so we've got that going now, and we're getting a crap off of that this year. So we're looking forward to seeing um, Uh, how it how it works out
2: cool yeah I mean so with with all these different apple varieties and different qualities that they impart into the cider uh, can you just talk a little bit about this the process of of making the cider and how do do you choose which varieties to use and do you blend them or you just do single variety ciders Um, (laughs) can you just like walk through the, the process of how you make cider, just kind of a brief summary of how you do that.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I, I say that the cider making, you know, begins when we're apple pressing because I will press uh, when I have uh, varieties that that ripen at, at at a similar time and they're going to go in the bottle together. Well, then I like to press them together. So, um, so the, the commingling of, of those, you um, of what those juices have to offer is already um, starting right, right from the apple pressing, um, and um, we also uh, we it, when our fermenter is available, we'll try to bring fresh juice right over to that uh, to the fermentation tanks. Uh, we also make apple brandy or have apple brandy made, so we uh, work with a distillery and we take. Some of our, our juice um, right to the distillery, and we do more of a Calvado style, meaning that we're also using um, a lot of uh, bitter tannic apples in the, in the mix, so some of these go go for distillation. We like a, a nice mix. Um, and then I look at like my classic dry cider, uh, one brand we have in the market um, that has five different tannic apple varieties in it with a tart apple base um, produced by Liberty a Cornell variety, and so I I have to, you know, make sure I've got totes that have those, uh, you know, one might have three different tannic varieties that ripen at a similar time, another one might have another two. Um, We also do a rosé cider, so we're pressing our first red flushed apples today, and that's just always so fun to see this, gosh, this deep red or this this, uh, rosy colored juice just coming out of the press. Um, so that that gets sectioned off and goes to our, our rosé cider. We have a later variety called Redfield that we'll be pressing later in the fall and we'll reserve that so that we can blend um, all those together um, for a rosé cider to be released uh, later this year or in the, in the spring. I've got an, another cider called Tremlets and that's just two cider variety or two apple varieties. Um, it, we just, we grow up Priscilla, which is a, an American apple developed by Purdue Rutgers in Illinois to be disease resistant. And, but I found that it, I just had a hunch when I, when we first started doing the blends that, that, and the Geneva Tremlett's bitter would be complementary to each other. And I had kind of the right ratios, the tannin and the Geneva Tremlett's bitter is not, is, is quite strong and, um, packs a punch. So we, um, we, we blended those two and it, and um, found it was quite appealing to to uh, those who knew cider, and so we continue to make that that blend today. Um, and when now we've had to ramp up our grafting. <laughs> I didn't really like to to do much with the Geneva tremlets before because it, it it's just every other year. The tree is one year on and one year off. So um, but I thought, well, geez, it does make a good cider, so I guess I'll just have to have to put up with that. Um, but, but those, two, and those two ripen at a, at a similar time. So, so we'll be pressing those in about 10 days. Um, okay. But yeah, so the pressing starts, starts there on the farm. And then it continues when we go to do, uh, we freeze juice also. And then we can pull specific uh, totes with, uh, according to the juice content uh, for doing the, um, the blends we want. We have another variety, another cider called Dabinett. So that's the star, uh, tannin in that in that blend and that's what we came up with um, with this year so um, and we we give dabinet a little bit of our porter's perfection and chisel jersey um, apples just to round out some of the some of the tannins with uh, liberty apple so mm-hmm.
0: so yeah.
2: I'm just curious like how scientific of a process is this I mean Dan when you make cider like are are you just kind of tasting the fresh juice and, uh, and kind of seeing where to go from there in terms of blending? Or are you actually out there with like scientific instruments measuring these different
0: qualities? Um, I, I used to do a little bit more testing, but I think I have a refractometer so I can tell the dissolved sugar. Uh, refractometer is a little device that you put a couple of drops of cider on in a glass and you close the lid, and you look through it, a sight glass, and it will tell you how many degrees brix, which is the amount of dissolved sugar that's in your, in your juice. And it does vary every year. Um, this year, being a little bit of a wet year, I've noticed the brix level uh, is a little bit lower on a lot of varieties. So I wouldn't call this necessarily a great vintage year, but it's a great quantity year. So we're going to be able to get lots of really good quality juice um, from some of these varieties. <clears throat> um, Oh, let's see where I was going to go with this, but um, it's, it's, I think I've come to realize that I trust my taste buds more than anything else. I can stand, um, uh, analyze things. I could send it off to be tested or do it myself, but I just find that, you know, I make what I like. That's the, probably the nice thing about being an amateur cider maker. And I don't do this professionally is I know what I like to put together in a mix. I tend to mix probably as many different kinds of apples as I can because what one lacks, another one picks up. And as Deirdre knows, you know, it's it's really getting that right ratio, that right mix that give you that quality that is trying to be consistent from year to year to year. And I think that's the, that's the fun of, of being a Uh, Amateur cider maker like myself, because you know it's going to be very different. But you can tweak your batches based on what you tasted. You can press some of these varieties separately, um, and and then see what that's like, and test another variety, and then you can do some mixing from that point on. Um, It's it's kind of fun. I don't do single varietals as a rule because I think they tend to get a little bit one dimensional. Some varieties are okay at that, but there's a lot that I think just Kind of leave you hanging a little bit. Um, I happen to have a, a a cider that was made from the Harrison apple. It was a um, cidery out in Colorado that I got some from, and that makes a wonderful cider by itself. And that's one of the rarities I think I've ever had that was really good just by itself. I, however they processed it, it was really good. But um, my my feeling has always been try to mix as many different kinds, many different types of flavors, not like the same kind all the time, but um, some ones that are sort of, you know, moderately, like builders, you know, they're the, your foundation cider, but then you add these ones that have some pretty intense flavors, just enough to give it that great mouthfeel and great quality to it. And it's really fun to put some of that away. Um, and then I'll age it, sometimes I'll, uh, I'll age it in oak and those little different ways of treating it. I don't like to add different flavors to it, uh, it's not my thing, but I know a lot of people do. Um, you have to make a cider if you're doing it commercially for the, you know, for the people that are going to be your customers. You have to make things that maybe you might like to be a little stronger, or, but you have to make cider a product that I think appeals to as many people as possible. But it's fun to play around uh, with some of these exceptionally um, interesting varieties. Let's put it that way. Um, that just add a lot of character and uh, see where it goes.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I assume Deirdre, there's year to year, you're not going to be making the same cider. It's going to be, it's going to be very different. And so once, once you have the fresh pressed juice, you know, what's, what's, what's the process from there?
0: Sure.
2: Either. Yeah. Yeah. Either one.
0: I could start because Deirdre is certainly more professional than I am but I'll tell you what an amateur does um, Mm -hmm. is is to get your juice I don't use wild yeast typically I I like to just sort of make sure my 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 cider is going to turn out so I buy a uh, just dry packets of yeast of cider type yeast but I will use like British ale yeast I will use a pasteur champagne yeast Uh, I know there's a lot more cider type yeast that are out there that are great. And they all do make a subtle difference in the, the way your juice turns out. So um, I've just always, I'm kind of sticking them out. I will use the same thing over and over and over again. I don't experiment a lot because I like what I get out of it. But it is, would be better if I probably branched out and tried more of some of these, bright. So you basically have your juice. You will then Add, uh, you use a carboy, like a five gallon carboy, if you're doing a small quantity. Um, that's the easy way to manage it and move it around. Um, you will, you will um, have a packet of yeast, which will handle about five gallons worth. You follow the directions and you put in a little bit of warm water to get it started. You pitch it, which is how you add it to your cider. Um, but you do need to check your cider to see um, how much sugar is in it because you're looking for about 6% alcohol. Um, That gives it shelf life. You need to have at least five to six percent, I think, to be able to have it so it lasts for a while and doesn't uh, turn bad on you. So you can pit, you can add sugar to it, which is probably the best product because it gives it a cidery kind of a flavor. People will use honey, which is great. That it's a different complexity, but that's fun as well. You can use brown sugars, but I just use a plain uh, cane sugar. Uh, and sometimes beet sugar. And that works to get so I have at least 6%. I'll make mine typically a little stronger, but um, but not a whole lot more than that because when I'm giving cider to my guests, you know I, I don't want to inebriate them immediately. It's nice <laughs> to play with them for a little while. <laughs> so you put in a fermentation lot because you need to t- keep the air out of your cider mix because you don't want to make um, vinegar. And the fermentation lot basically has a little bit of water in a, in a little deep part of the, of the unit. And so bubbles can get past it, but the air can't get back. So you let it bubble away. It gets really frothy when it first gets going. It's quite wild. Um, I've got stories I can tell you about that, but that's for another day. But um, let it froth for a while, keep it in a place where you can sometimes uh, wash off the uh, container because sometimes foam comes out of the fermentation lock. So you need to have a spare or be able to clean it out. Uh, There's different ways of doing it, but this is the the typical. And you let it basically bubble until it pretty much stops. It takes uh, about eight weeks or so. Um, Good fermentation temperature is around 68 degrees. Um, You don't want to work it too fast. You don't want to do it too slow, but 68 degrees has generally been sort of a modicum of um, the correct temperature. And then when it gets down there, you see the activity is a lot less, and that's a point where then you would like to rack your cider into another clean container. Um, Basically, you've got all that spent yeast down at the bottom of your container, and you want to clarify it. So by being able to siphon all the material above that layer of um, basically dead yeast cells onto a new clean container, um, then you can keep doing that until basically you can have a very clear product without much haze in it. And at that point, you will then mix up about a half a cup of sugar in a, in a pint of water, boil it on the stove to sanitize it, uh, stir it together, and then when it cools down a little bit, you can put that back into your cider that's in the container and then bottle it because that's your priming sugar for a nice sparkling sparkling cider. Each gallon or each five gallons of cider will make about 52 12 ounce bottles of beer uh, or use a beer bottle for that. Um, you, you can use other containers but you need to have something that can handle pressure. So um, old, um, Champagne bottles are wonderful for it. Don't use old wine bottles because they can't, they can't um, pressurize those at all. Um, and then you can cap them and put them away for a while. Let it age a little bit. Sometimes I've, I've got a friend that puts um, charred oak chips in his which is kind of interesting you're pouring cider and this stick comes out but it gives your cider that nice sort of tannin structure uh vanilla tones from the from the oak you can play around with it you can age your cider in oak containers there's lots of fun little things you can do but that's the yeah. basics of making cider it is so simple it's not funny
2: yeah yeah that's what i love about cider too it's so easy um does that sound about uh, how you do things, Deirdre, just uh, on a larger scale?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it does. I mean, uh, Dan mentioned uh, checking your um, bricks level or your, um, you want to know kind of what sort of sugar you're starting with. So you can get a thing called a hygrometer uh, to help you measure that. And that can also help yep. you ascertain, if not just by taste, but um, how dry it is. Um, uh, Of course, we do use um, uh, packaged yeast uh, for our blend. We use an organic one. Uh, And then we have um, fermentation tanks, and they uh, have temperature controls on them. So, And then since we can't really prime with sugar to get the carbonation, we have a a carbonating uh, tank. Um, For some reason, they're called bright tanks. So that's the last stage before packaging, um, that it goes into that, um, that, that carbonation tank.
2: Cool. So uh, probably a lot of our, our listeners are familiar with kind of the the mainstream brands of cider, like Angry Orchard. Um, how, how do your, the ciders that you guys make, how are they different?
0: They have flavor.
2: (laughs) Well,
1: it's a flavor from the apples, whereas, yes. I mean, um, like, for example, we do a rose cider and we use actual red fleshed apples. Uh, we will add some other um, uh, fruit juices to give some more color and, and to balance acidity, but um, we're not using, I mean, um, there are some interesting things. I think it's like sweet potato peels and some, so, some other things to kind of um, make it make it rosé. Um, and we're expanding our our Rose apple collection. Some of those varieties that just haven't worked out well, and I'll uh, now grab top working them to um, some some red fleshed apples, and some some of them are doing quite well. And there is a tannic um, one uh, that uh, that grows quite well, called redfield. Um, so, uh, the the yeah so I, I think we're featuring the apple I mean we do an oak aged cider like like Dan was talking about um, we 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 can sometimes have gone off uh, onto the onto the other side you might say <laughs> uh, just for some of those commercial purposes but we're not adding like habanero chilies or blood <laughs> orange juice or I mean it was distressing to me when I first saw this happening some years ago in the Cider Craft magazine about, you know, people making those kinds of things. And I just thought, where is the apple in all of that? But I think that a lot of that's because, um, and and people don't really know this very much, because even craft cider makers, besides some large brands, will buy just apple juice concentrate. I mean, one at the big cider convention said in a seminar that, he just uses whatever's cheapest on the global market. And so, I mean, China's the largest producer of that. Uh, so it could very well be from there. Um, but it's, I mean, what, what is juice concentrate? Well, it's, it's boiled down apple juice. So you are losing aromas and um, you're losing some of the flavors or you're changing some of them. So I think maybe if people are using that as their base, they have to do something because there may not be that much that much there. And so sometimes I think, well, then you could just almost be using anything if you're just going to be making it taste like something else or adding an entirely different um. Different set of flavor flavor profiles, so Mm -hmm. to you know to get something, but um, but that's you know I mean I mean I think in the American market there's just a lot of a lot of creativity, and so that I think is to be to be noted. But um, it's just you know our our path is not is not that one, and there's plenty of sweet cider in the marketplace, and so we 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 wanted to be drier because I don't want to. I mean I tell people I'm not going to grow go to the trouble of growing these varieties organically with these lovely tannins in them and then just cover them up with sugar. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you can do some back sweetening to balance, especially acidity. Um, and we one year just had, it turned out with a very cool fall and some very low pHs. And so in our Tremlett cider, the only thing we could do to balance that acidity was to do <clears throat> a little more back sweetening. But we got these lovely notes of caramel apple. <laughs> and it sold very well but i had to say hey you know that's a, a one-year phenomenon we don't know how often that would happen again um but uh so you know being an agricultural product you can get that uh year-to-year var- variation one especially when you're when you are featuring featuring the apples in the cider
0: mm-hmm. so sometimes when you have like a really acidic cider you can do a malolactic fermentation. It's a, it's an extra product you can put in there and it sort of will buffer that acidity down and it'll actually give your cider some Chardonnay notes and it'll have sort of a buttery uh, constitution like, like Chardonnays do. So there's some fun things you can do that are very simple and don't take much. But I think Deirdre is exactly on point where it's about the apples. There are a lot of people that got into the cider business because they wanted to make cider. They didn't grow the fruit, but they knew how to, how to, the process worked. So they were just buying tanker loads of uh, dessert apple cider um, and and putting it out and, and calling it their the wonderful apple cider. And frankly, um, it doesn't work for me. It just doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I have a friend of mine who um, calls that a middle C cider on the piano scale. It's kind of right in the middle. It appeals to about anybody, but it's not exceptional one way or the other but it's drinkable i mean that's the lovely thing about it it's kind of like a like a lawnmower cider of beer um you know it's just one of those things it's just it's a really good thirst quencher, but it's it's nothing that i would go out of my way for
1: mm-hmm. so
0: a true artisanal cider maker like deirdre mm-hmm. you know utilizes really good apples to make the product that she makes and that's uh, that's why it's to me it's this fabulous cider um um, do a lot of wonderful things. So um, other varieties, I know we, we dance around a little bit, but I like to use russet apples whenever possible, because they have a really great sugar acid balance. Uh, they aren't necessarily tannic, um, so you may need to add a tannic variety, but I think they typically have better aromas um, and a real rich, deep flavor, which is wonderful for making a hard cider from. So I, I'm, I'm a big fan of using russet apples whenever I can, but blend it with uh, some of the ones that have that um, bitter sharp um, flavor, bittersweet flavor for that mouthfeel. And it really makes a, a pretty neat product. So the fun of it is experimenting with whatever you have at hand, but um, realize that, uh, you know, you wanna make a cider that I think is significant um, and it's, it's going to be different from year to year, but that's what makes it fun because who knows what it's going to be like next year? Subtle, you know, it, it may be. But um, the same friend of mine also likes to blend horseradish into his cider. He um, will <laughs> dice up horseradish roots. Now I'll tell you that is something to be appreciated. <laughs> but it is it is pretty good. It pairs really well. You have to think about this how it works with food. This pairs with bratwurst really well and pizza and and stronger flavored things. So you can have a lot of fun with this just using ingredients that you have around. Uh, Some people use aronia berries, which I don't particularly care for, but it adds a lot of color if you don't have red fleshed apples, but um, it's it's fun to, um, like I said, that's the fun of being an amateur. You can make small batches of bad things and not waste a lot of material. (laughs) yeah it turns out pretty well
1: (laughs) yeah speaking of aronia that i mean that is a highly tannic fruit so you can you can get color and and tannin from that and uh we do have a friend who's won uh, many amateur awards for his aronia uh bloomer dropper (laughs) sizer so Uh, it is quite uh, high, high octane, but uh, I think that one does the best of his different um, sizers because of that of that ironia. Mm-hmm. And and although we've talked a lot about tannic apple varieties, we do um, have two um, table apple varieties we we grow. Um, but then our our plan from the start was while well, we focus on the tannic, then to also. Um, collaborate with other organic growers and so there's been two that um, in some years we have um, purchased just like a blend of table apple juice from them and they also make their own brand of cider so they so they know what we're after Um, uh, but um, yeah so so you can um, blend in some of those uh, dessert apples to get the aromas the acid in particular Um, since a lot of these, as Dan was mentioning in the, in the Midwest, we, they bittersweet means the apple is high in tannin, but low in acid. So yeah, um,
0: I had a chance to try a cider, um, in, from New York state that was a smoked cider. Now that's different. It's like sort of drinking a campfire. Um, (laughs) It's unique. I have to admit, I have no idea how they make it. But that's uh, something that's kind of running the gambit around uh, some of the cideries now. Is these uh, variations of how you make cider. But the smoked cider is something totally new to me. I have no oh idea God. how they do it. But oh well,
2: huh. lots of different
0: choices out there.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, Deirdre, just in general, do you not add anything to your cider? Like uh, you know, aside from the apples, you're not you're not adding any other flavorings or fruits or, or anything. It's just it's just pure.
1: Love it. Um, no, no, there are two uh, that we do do that with and we, we might, uh, we might sulfite at the start. And, um, and so we have we have one that's called sizer, which by definition means you fermented honey with the apple juice and the result is sizer. And uh, so, and it gets to a higher alcohol, it's 9%. So it is, it is technically an apple honey wine according to the federal government. <laughs> and we have <laughs> to label it as such. And uh, we get to put wine tax on it. Um, but we do have one called Equinox where we add a subtle hops called Equinot. And the this was requested, we private label ciders for some friends and they requested that. And we thought, oh, we didn't know how hops would actually work. We'd only had kind of some bad hop ciders at the time, and but they were friends and we wanted to be open-minded. So we sampled out a bunch of hops. And when we got to one called Equinox, it was like a pause around the table and somebody goes, I'm getting a little notes of like a New Zealand Savignon Blanc on this. And our tagline was cider refreshment with wine complexity. So we thought, hey, I think we can do this. So we, we don't emphasize that there's a subtle hops in there, but it gives it green grassy citrus notes, characteristic of a New Zealand Savillon Blanc. Um, and then we have another one that's, that's quite different where my husband was reading a book on Belgian farmhouse ales and thought, hmm, wonder if we could do a cider that incorporates some of these flavors. Um, and so we've come out with that. And so there are quite a few adjuncts in it, like bitter, several hops, bitter orange peel, seed uh, of paradise, star anise, bergamot. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite popular. So that's like a, a limited release cider for us. So that was kind of our, our step away from uh, what we what we usually do.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you talked a little bit about um, the different preferences in flavor, like, you know, from the Northeastern part of the US and the Midwest. Have there been tastings to discern like what kind of cider people prefer in this area? And then have you, you know, made cider to, to match those preferences or? No,
0: nope, I just make what I like. Just, <laughs> yeah. I'm stuck in like, I like what I make. It's, it, I think it's pretty decent cider. But, you know, it is fun to taste other people's experiments. Um, I had a toasted coconut rum cider, which um, I'll tell you, I wasn't yeah. sure if it, if, if it was a little thicker, it might be a pie or, or it was cider, but that's not a flavor I would have more than one, but it was unique. But that's the fun of it. Um, and a lot of people, of course, are trying the single varietals. The Arkansas Black was a it was a popular one, people were trying. And in that case, the quality or the, the different yeast that they used made altogether all all the difference in the world about how it how it tasted in the long run. Mm-hmm. So I think. Um, apples are a lot of the component part that really you know stands out. But boy, I'll tell you, sometimes it's the yeast that can, how it acts upon that apple um, makes quite a bit of difference too. So, you know, be flexible about what you're trying and, and try a couple of different ways, and see what comes out. It's not like you have to search for that perfect yeast or whatever, but, you know, um, learn to make a good Apple cider by itself, and that should stand uh, stand alone. But you know, it's fun to play around with it, come up with a couple of different things because you know, we're taste is so subjective. What I like is not going to necessarily be what someone else likes. There's a flavor quality uh, called uh, barnyard funk that Mm -hmm. uh, sounds really terrible, but that is actually my favorite cider style um, because it has these sort of earthy tones to it. and this, there's some somerset ciders that i've had from england that have that barnyard funk quality to it and i really like those. those those tend to be what really makes me happy um but you know that's the fun of it is is understanding yourself what you like and hopefully you find enough other people that like what you make um, and you can you can sell it but yeah. uh, you know that's that's the joy of it is experimenting
2: mm-hmm.
0: okay. yeah and
1: i think Dan was commenting about the Northeast and the Midwest because he gets to travel a lot. You know, he's a sought out, he's a sought out person. So as he's been able to travel, move around, uh, <laughs> he's, picked up on these, uh, yeah. he's picked up on these uh, these nuances. So yeah. So that yeah. was interesting to, me, to hear that.
2: Yeah. Deirdre, can you talk a little bit about the apple brandy that, that you make?
1: Yeah. So it's um, I mean, we, Put together the juice, and then we take it um, to the distillery, and then they start fermentation um, that that day. Uh, So it's you know we press one day, and then the next morning it um, we truck it over to the to the um, distillery, and they pitch it with with yeast just like you do to make cider because you first got to convert the juice to cider, Um, and then it goes uh, for distillation. Once it's stabilized, uh, there's not a rush to get it. You know once it's a uh, it stay, stabilizes as cider. Then there's not a rush. You can kind of get in the queue, um, and and wait for the um, distillation tanks to be over uh, to to be open. Um, but um, we've uh, done kind of two things. We work with a distiller who does like a double distillation. So first they do a stripping run where you're just heating the, you're you're heating the cider, and you're getting the alcohol to volatilize off. And so they separate out the, what they call the, the heads. It's the first part to volatize off. It has a lot of acetone in it um, and it literally smells like nail polish remover. So that's what craft distillation does. It, it, it moves that out. Um, big, huge, giant distilleries just mix it all together. And that's where people might get a headache from drinking too much cheap liquor. Um, and so then they go for the heart. And that's what they really capture, and then the tails are also discarded um, because those have mm-hmm. some characteristics that aren't aren't as tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, I mean, and when when it's double distilled, first they'll just do a stripping run to just get all the alcohol out, and mm-hmm. then they fractionate it into those into those three components. Mm-hmm. Um, the other uh, uh, kind of some of the other dis- distillation we've been experimenting. Uh, uh, with at a different distillery is to use a more of a French still and a still where um, it's all there. There is an, a two-step process. They just monitor for the heads and the tails as it's as it's coming off the mm-hmm. off the still, and then we barrel age it. So we have a two-year aged and we have a five-year aged. Um, and we started out using charred oak bourbon barrels with some wild applewood from the farm. Mm-hmm. And then one year, when there was a barrel shortage, we thought, well, heck, the French use their barrels for generations. So let's just reuse our barrel. And we aged it an extra year to, I mean, at that point, it was three years. And we we love the result. Mm -hmm. So now we we continue to reuse all of our barrels, but we've also expanded production. So we continue to bring in barrels. And we've been experimenting also now with some uh, toasted um, uh, oak wine barrels. So uh, first use, um, there was no like uh, bourbon in them before. Um, so we're we're looking to see um, how that affects it, but you gotta wait at least two years, if not five.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time to wait.
1: Yeah. So these experiments, yeah, you gotta, yeah, you gotta gotta have some patience. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: And so far we've been we've been fortunate. Um, we just had a had a a lot of a lot of good batches, but the apple varieties. And the year, uh, the, what was um, the growing conditions of that year can make a real difference, we've we've found too, uh, because we had our first release and then our second release came out from a batch that was from the um, summer in March, uh, freezes in April, late April, the hottest July on record and the worst drought in 25 years. <laughs> that juice was so thick and aromatic it, the distillery said they've never smelled anything like it. It just the aroma just permeated the distillery, so wow. um, and that that produced because a lot of our very late blooming, we got mostly late blooming bittersweets uh, that survived that that year. So um, so it made at first I was alarmed that it was so different from the first batch, and the distiller said your apples remember, and I I smelled the he had right when it came off the still. Uh, he lifted the lid of the container for me and I just thought this is going to be a face full of alcohol because it's like 140 proof and it was like wow those are some nice aromatics it wasn't just Mm. um, wasn't just alcohol so it really pulled home the point that uh, the apples use and the growing conditions do make a difference
0: yeah just to mention uh, Deirdre I have a bottle from your first barrel still I've been holding on to that for a long time.
1: <laughs> you know, and we've always liked that one. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and we've had some others that we will compare to that and say, "Oh, well, yeah, this." Is that was like a good one. one. Or, I bought
0: a couple, so I I made sure I kept one around just for whenever.
1: <laughs> Great, thanks,
0: Dan. The yeah, longer you,
2: the longer you hold on to it, Dan, the harder it's going to be to crack it open
0: (laughs) i know i know it's pretty tough but it's it's like having gold in my cupboard you know that's (laughs) that's what i love about it it's just beautiful color it's uh got it's got such a nice aroma to it the one that, that i did open and have yeah that disappeared a long time ago but um yeah sometimes they call um like the head and tails they call it the four shots and feints there's a lot of different terminology for it depends i guess where you learned it but um um It is, uh, those sort of home stills are, I guess it's probably still technically illegal. I tried making it a a couple of times and it was a lot of fun. I think ethanol evaporates at about 163 degrees. So you have to get your your product up to that temperature. And I guess the old fashioned way of doing it is when it drips out of uh, the condenser is you have a little metal pan and you light it and you look for the color of the flame. Uh, if it's got a lot of yellow in it you don't use it because um, it's got bad stuff in it uh, you wait till you got a nice blue flame then your then your product is right so you get rid of those early alcohols that evaporate a little bit differently uh, and then you leave it for the for the other ones that are good and when it starts to come uh, end the production and it starts turning color again on the flame yeah then you, you quit using it you quit uh, distilling at that point so um, that's the unofficial amateur way of doing it <laughs> sounds a little subjective <laughs> uh, uh, and scary yeah <laughs> scary. yeah
1: you probably you probably don't want to do that around a, a place with a lot of alcohol a lot of distilled no product. <laughs> no.
0: no it's a uh, somewhat dangerous yes yeah but uh, but it's you it was a unique product i have to admit when it was all said and done highly unrefined but i guess that's you know how i feel about myself i guess
2: <laughs> <laughs> so what have you noticed about the apple crop this year i mean dan you said it's because it's been a wet year you think the the sugars are low and
0: they're a little bit lower um there are lots of apples that i've not seen before uh, a friend of mine and i went to uh, um uh scrounging for apples on wild hillsides and around Eights in Minnesota, which is the southeast corner and some other places. And we are finding apples on trees we'd never seen bear fruit before. And in this year, they actually were ripening sometimes several weeks earlier than usual. So it's kind of an unusual year considering it seemed like it was such a long protracted uh, winter into spring. Um, I didn't think we would have apples that were maturing sometimes three weeks earlier than usual. But that's what we're seeing. We tagged some of these trees before and we had the date that we sampled it and um, and the notes that we had on it. And this this year it's really different, but there are a lot of apples and a lot of things we've we found uh, in this past couple of weeks that uh, I think may have some potential for cider production. Hmm. We found one, um, I'll, have to, I'll have to share that with you, Deirdre. It's uh, wicked. Um, <laughs> you thought the crone bush had a lot of tannins in it? I think this one is even crazier. It doesn't have the sugars, though. That's the downside to it. Uh Um, We call it the black hole, because if you cut a little piece of it and you sample it, you have, it takes a while for you to pry your lip away from your your teeth, because it's just, your mouth is shrunk so much, it's got (laughs) so much tannin and astringency (laughs) in it. But wow. Wow. Um, I don't know if I... I was thinking I'd, I was gonna make, we found some really good apples that we made some pies out of. And I thought, well, if I put a little piece of this apple in one corner, it'll sort of be like hiding the anchovy in a pizza um, just <laughs> to see people run across that. But it's a, it's a seriously wicked apple, but uh, we've never seen this tree bear before. And that's the fun of it because we're finding stuff that um, it, it's pretty unique. And if we get it uh, back to more of a drier year, that the sugars are a little bit more concentrated. I think sometimes these flavors are gonna be exceptional and we're hoping that these will be good potential cider varieties kind of like the Cronebush, that have possibilities, I think. Um, And they're hardy, they adapt well, they don't seem to have issues with fire blight. So that's what I think what I'm trying to look for is that that next unique kind of apple that uh, might be really popular. and I want it so people have access to it. It's not like I want to, you know, command the market to sell it or anything like that. I think I like to open source things. You know, if I find something that's really good, I want to share it with people because mm-hmm. I think it's important. And mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the joy of this.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as we start to to wrap this up, um, just curious, what, what are the both of you really excited about making this year? Is there any particular cider or flavor combination that, that you're excited about?
0: Hmm. Go ahead, dear. Deirdre, you start this <laughs> one.
1: Oh, geez. Um, uh, well, we we have found that our Dabonet cider is doing very well, I and mean, it's getting a lot of uh, consumer appeal, so we got a great crop of, of, of Dabonet this year, so we'll certainly, which means we probably won't have a lot next year. That's the thing about, uh, we're going to kind of squirrel away some cider uh, since I uh, with a big crop this year, it means you won't have necessarily that same size crop um, next year. Uh, so, But um, we're getting uh, the most red flesh uh, apples we've ever had. So I'm really looking forward to uh, making even more rosé, um, getting that back on, on the shelf. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're going to see how this, how this wish does. And uh, we'll put some of that into the apple brandy as well as uh, into some of our, our, our cider blends. And we'll be, uh, checking the pHs and the, and the bricks on things as we go. Typically at this start of the year, the bricks, uh, content, the sugar content's a little lower on these early ones. And it just seems to. Pick up as we um, with our later varieties, and we also leave apples on the tree for a long time. So we we let them drop or wait till they are dropping, and then shake them off the tree and um, harvest them off the ground because uh, we want you know for example the Liberty apple. Uh, if I buy that from one of my uh, organic table apple grower friends, it is quite tart, but. Ours is quite pleasant. It doesn't, it has so much more sugar and other flavors to it. And that's what we want out of every apple. So we really let them stay on the tree to just get everything that apple has to give us. And I think that also just gives you, you know, a little bit more of the terroir. We're in the beautiful driftless region of Wisconsin. And and we like to think that um, people are, are tasting some of that too.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dan, anything that that you're excited about trying or making this year?
0: I've got some new russet apples that are coming along finally, and uh, the trees are starting to bear, so it'll be a small quantity, but I've got some Wyndham russet, some Lincolnville russet, a Dockham russet, um, and a few others that I can't remember the names offhand that I've going it really be playing around with and see what the juice quality is and try to mix up something that uh, takes the best of both worlds of all these different kinds and see what I can do with that. But um, yeah, I've got some, some fun stuff coming along. The The silverwood orchard is actually, most of the trees are still in the nursery, but some of them are already bearing fruit after three years. So there's some fun things to come along, no great quantity, but I'll be able to make some small batches and I'm see what happens with that. So that'll be, uh, that'll be what I'm looking forward to. Cool.
1: We also found we put out a lot of rootstocks where trees were missing. And I've been mostly using this Russian rootstock um, that its abbreviated name is Bud Nine. And that little rootstock just uh likes to just jump up and grow and give you apples <laughs> the second year in the ground. And they're uh-huh. red blood they're red flushed, So I'm like, Hey, great. I'll take them until we top work you to something else. (laughs) I'll take your little red apples and, and they'll go into, into our rosé cider.
2: Are you just going to let, let those trees keep growing or you're going to actually use them as a rootstock eventually?
1: Yeah, no, we'll, we'll use them as, as a rootstock. I've got a couple that kind of, cause they're actually more bushy. Uh, they kind of flop around, um, but I've got a couple that seem like they want to try to be like their neighboring trees and grow up big and tall. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so we'll see if a few of them do that, but but otherwise we'll be taught working uh, them over to what else is in that row, try to keep it consistent What's in, what's mm-hmm. in the row.
2: Mm-hmm. Cool. So last question, I guess, is what would you tell somebody who's maybe looking to start Uh, commercial cidery like what what kind of advice I guess would you would you give them
0: Um, if you've had a chance to grow apples for a long time uh, a person you know has a little bit of wherewithal about I think how apples work and what you can do with them but I would suggest uh, trying to mentor with an accomplished cider maker Uh, and learn the trade and what works because you know it's a business you have to consider it as a business you know I love making cider you know and I don't see you know a dime for it that's not my point is that it's it's a joy and I think you need to have the love to do it um, but you have to also consider it as a business so mentoring with with a cidery I think is is probably a great way to learn just to know what happens and where Um, you know there's a lot of cideries that aren't growers, but there is a lot that are both. And I think Gerda is unique in that regard that she grows the apples that she uses, which is wonderful. Um, so I think that's that's the best way to learn is learn the apples and then you can learn the cidering and learn what you like to make and learn to drink. Um, do you want to do it as a business or you want to just keep it at the small level and just do it for yourself and your friends? So once you can make that decision, you can go commercial. Um, yeah, then you have the background to do it hmm mm-hmm.
1: yeah that's a that, that's great advice um I mean I think you people already know that it, hey if you're gonna if you want to make this just for home use and friends and family go for it um but yeah commercially I think Dan's got a great point now that there are other cideries I think when we started he <laughs> had to go like to the one of the coasts to find another side yeah, you
0: did yeah
1: yeah and um the so you know there are there are places um where you can you can get involved in and learn all aspects of it, because uh, alcohol is highly regulated. (laughs) And sometimes you just don't even know what some of those laws and regulations and rules are out there. And uh, until they uh, present themselves to you in the mail or a phone call. <laughs> so, um, so So there's just a lot of kind of legal legal things. Uh, there's a lot of um, expenses you may not you may not think about. So it, it, it'd be really good to get in, into a commercial operation and try to see all aspects of it and try to do all aspects of it um, so that you have a much better idea of, of what approach you want to make. And then I think you have to figure out. I mean, do you want to, Deal with apples? Do you want to grow apples? Do you want to um, you know, buy a, a source juice? And then and then and then what sort of juice? Um, there is uh, an orchard in New Hampshire, Poverty Lane Orchard, that that does their own Farnham Hill ciders. And he was one of the first real commercial growers of these English cider apples in the US. So he's almost looked to as like a godfather of the cider industry. And he does very fine ciders and very, very quality oriented. Um, And he also will sell these tannic apple varieties to to other growers or to other cider makers, I should say. So, you know, if you want to try to go go that route, um, you can also, but you know, those kind of people are are few and far between. And I, you know, myself of course get hit up for 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 our apples too. So um but um Do
2: you sell your apples to other cider we, producers? Or?
1: Uh, we have not. It's kind of um something I'm entertaining at least thinking about um, uh, this year. Um, previously, it's just like no, we just don't have enough for for what for what we're doing, but being a being a big croppier, um I'm at least entertaining the thought. so
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. and, and uh, especially for some some friends who are who are who are home cider makers and and really would would value the opportunity to work with these apples
2: mm-hmm. yeah cool well any final thoughts or
1: well we should all get together and drink some good cider
0: (laughs) yeah yes that sounds great
1: (laughs) i want to try some (laughs) dance
0: yeah oh it's it's you know it's the funniest thing is you know I, i i i love cider because my father when i was just a kid uh, brought home we we had scrounged all the apples we could find here on the farm and we had a local cider mill press it and we brought home the juice and we my dad had a big uh, gallon glass jar and he left the cap loose on the counter and you know it starts working and frothing and all that stuff and that's when we drank it is when it was starting to get really nice and fizzy and stuff and that that taste of that cider when i first made my own was exactly the same as what I had when I was a kid. So it's that taste memory that really hooked me on cider making. And I never look back. It is just a joy. Um, mm-hmm. I love the cider. I think it's a great product. Uh, I think there's a great market for it in this country. I think people have turned around and really like what cider is. Um, to me, you can make it still where there's no bubbles or make it so it's busy and, you know, whatever you want. But it's, it's such a, I think, such a nice product because it's just so little manipulated in comparison to a lot of things that I think it's just uh, really a wholesome, healthy, uh, good product to have. And it's fun.
1: And Dan mentioned a, a still cider and to do a still and dry cider, that's a real challenge yeah. because c- c- uh, uh, wine and cider making can hide behind sugar. You can kind of ameliorate Certain faults or whatever with with sugar, and also just jacking jacking up the carbonation. (laughs) So when you're still when it's still and dry, it's kind of it's out there. It's almost like it's naked. I mean, it's just standing there on the on the quality of that cider. So
0: that's the true test of a cider maker is how do they do a good dry still cider? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the apples have to talk.
2: Wow, interesting. I could. I could listen to this all day, but <laughs> um, yeah, thank you two so much for joining this podcast and really appreciate you making the time. Um, it was really insightful and I'm inspired to, to make more cider. So yeah, thank you, Deirdre, Dan. Um, thank you all for listening. This was another episode of The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. And our first episode on Cider Apples with Dan Bussey and Deirdre Birmingham. Thanks for joining us.
0: Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.